super inspiring, super creative. Uh, what I have to say will be none of those things, but we'll do it uh, anyway. So my name is Andrea, uh, and I actually, just as an aside, was, uh, was presenting something on diversity in Belgium yesterday, and it was in a, a glass barn, and there were cows roaming around while I was presenting, and I was like, this is the weirdest presentation I've ever given. And then I was like, oh no, today I'm going to present in a volcano. So that's... Uh, Way to level up Sweden, well done, that's good. I assume tomorrow I'll be on Mars at this rate. So uh, I am here to talk about uh, measurement. In particular, I'm gonna talk about measuring diversity, and I, I'm referring to diversity in companies, that's what, where I spend most of my time, so my examples are gonna be from there. But it's not limited to diversity in companies, it can be in organizations, communities, countries, and it can also, by the way, just be humans generally. So this is our way in, because I'm spending a lot of time thinking about that, but I hope that it applies broadly. And I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about who I am and why I am talking about these things. Uh, I am currently a professor of data science at New York University, uh, where I do teach a course on data science for everyone because I believe that now, because data is everywhere, and because we have access to it, and because we can look up statistics about the most common person, and we can do the work to, to uncover really important data or, or find ways to discover it, uh, and now they have this data set that I hope is publicly available that we can all go in and analyze and challenge other products, right? We can all be data scientists, and there's nothing really stopping us. And there's a lot of resources online out there about uh, how to code better, and that's part of data science, but knowing what program or what inquiry or what data to even look for in the first place is what I argue a much more, maybe not more important, but equally important aspect that doesn't get as much attention. So I'm gonna talk about some of the, the big themes that I encounter when I talk to companies, to people who are not living full-time in the research space, about some of the things that they're doing with data and that I think they could do ever, ever so slightly differently and have vast improvements on the insights that we generate and hopefully all collectively help solve things like climate change and other things that we really just need lots more information and lots more hands on deck. So one is when people think about data, they tend to think about data as an answer, and they don't really wonder about what question they're asking. Only when you're faced with a very specific challenge, like how do I measure this thing, right? How do I figure out the sum consumption? It's a good thing you went first, so I can just keep referencing you all the time, right? Uh, a lot of times we think that data is an answer, and we don't start to think about the questions. And I'm gonna give you some examples of how just this little switch can make a big difference in our inquiries. The second is we tend to jump from data to interpretation. We see some statistic, X percentage of women are leaving my company, and we jump to whatever conclusion comes to mind first, right? Without actually taking the time to dig in and get to what we call it in social science, the deeper causal mechanism behind it. What's really driving this change? And a big one is that we tend to interpret data as truth. And data sounds like truth. And I say this as a data scientist who makes a living from data, that data is one version of humans looking at the entire world and just picking out the pieces that we want to pay attention to. And so the art of turning something in the world into a piece of data that we look at on a spreadsheet or we turn into art or make inferences about the world is itself a subjective, and I argue I'm not an artistic person, but I argue it's an art of its kind. So instead, I want to talk about how starting with questions rather than looking for answers in the data can actually help us make better inferences. I'm going to talk about how the act of deciding on what to measure in the first place actually helps you clarify what it is that you're thinking about 
at all, rather than just kind of seeing what data is there, right? It's a part that, by the way, my students hate. They're very bored by this part. I think it's fascinating. And I think it's very encouraging, by the way, that this is an entire room of people spending an afternoon talking about measurement. So thank you for making my life complete, right? Uh, and finally, Recognizing that data is imperfect and flawed and often subjective, whether or not it's a measurement error or what we're choosing to measure in the first place, how we're defining this thing, doesn't mean that data is useless. I really hesitate to make this point, especially now, I mean, at least in the United States. The, by the way, your assessment of Americans, 100% accurate. Yeah, I was like, get away. I'm going to use a ruler for now. It's great. Uh, everyone's like, back away. And the gum thing, though, I, okay, it doesn't matter. Uh, I can't, okay, it doesn't, okay. If anyone chews gum near me, I'll lose my mind, is what I'm trying to say. But, uh, OK, doesn't matter. Uh, this whole talk is derailed, because now I'm thinking about gum. Talking about the weaknesses of data doesn't make it something that you just throw away, right? So, oh, so in the US, that's what I was talking about. So in the US, uh, we are very worried right now. I'm worried about all this like fake news and alternative facts, and nothing is real. And I mean, there's another talk going on about deep fakes, and it's terrifying stuff. And so I, I hesitate to join the conversation to say, also, yikes, data can be just you know anyone can think of it. But it doesn't mean just because it's imperfect, as you said, doesn't mean that we throw it out. So I'm going to talk about these three things. First, a little intro for who I am, and we'll wrap up. And if you're wondering, um, I do do my own graphics. Okay, it's rectangle heavy. That's what happens. <laughs> I turned in an earlier version of this deck, and it just had these same words, not in rectangles. And I was like, don't worry, I made it look nicer. So I'll take some art tips from everybody, pretty much. So, so I'm a social scientist. My PhD is in political science. I just walked in a circle for no reason. This is what happens in a volcano. My, my research is in political science. And I, where am I, political scientists? Raise your hands. Hell yes. All right, cool. We are few but mighty. Well done. Thank you very much. So political scientists, number one, no one knows what that is except for those of you who've done it, right? But what we're trying to do is apply scientific methods, quantitative analysis, to understand big things in the political world. So I spent a lot of time in my PhD thinking about what war is. And if you can't really measure war, it's hard to do statistical tests to understand what might be causing it, what the consequences of it, uh, what makes a war longer or shorter, or, or what works to settle wars and that sort of thing. And it turns out even something as, as, as commonly thought about as war is really hard to measure, right? Is it a war if 100 soldiers die? Is it a war if 50 soldiers die? Is it a war if 10? What if some of those people are not soldiers? And then do we call it a war, right? What if someone has to declare it as a war? And so even just defining something that's relatively concrete and very material uh, can be very difficult. Another big question is how do we measure democracy, right? How do we decide how democratic a country is or is not? One of the big focuses tends to be on elections. So, okay, so a country has an election, therefore it's a democracy. Well, there's a lot of elections out there that aren't maybe up to snuff, depending on, or, or, or would be, it would rule in a lot of countries that we wouldn't think of as democratic, even though they're holding elections. And so even something simple as that is very, very contested. But political scientists are also interested in what makes countries we tend to look at the national level or the local community level. What makes them, quote unquote, work? What makes a place a good place to live? A place where you don't live in fear, where you have access to the things that you need. And we think that something along the lines of trust, whether it's trust in institutions, trust in our neighbors, trust that it's not, we're not all gonna fucking die, you know, all those sorts of things. Uh, but that gets very hard to measure. And you can, if you're ever wondering if something's hard to measure, just try to find a Google, do a Google image search for it. Because there are no pictures of trust. It's just like signs that say trust, like trust and 
trust, right? Like, so we have, this is how you know that there's no good measure for trust. We have no idea, right? So I've been working with companies to help them measure something uh, else that a lot of companies are thinking about, which is diversity. And diversity, with respect to the types of people you have in your company, can take all kinds of forms, right? We commonly, at least in the United States, think about divisions of uh, women versus men. Increasingly, we talk about uh, uh, non-binary, gender fluid, et cetera, but not that much, frankly. Uh, we talk about people of color, but there's all kinds of different, right? Disabilities, age, size, religious background, all the amazing aspects uh, that we discussed uh, earlier. That was a royal we. You discussed them. I enjoyed it. So, uh, but it's tough. So even deciding what aspect of diversity to measure is tough. And by the way, if you're wondering, are there good measures of diversity? No, there are not, because we're still making signs. One of the top images is just tomatoes, right? We have a lot of work to do. Nothing against these very diverse tomatoes. I really do applaud, <laughs> applaud the tomato diversity on the internet. But when we talk about diversity, that's just one piece of it, right? Because we also want to know what the inputs and outputs are. What's causing more or less diversity? What are the consequences of more or less diversity, right? Uh, other than, you know, we might want to have it normatively as a social good. So there's all kinds of other topics, inclusion, belonging, respect, privilege, that I'm very interested in finding thoughtful ways to measure. Because I think if you can measure them, you can start to document them, and you can start to change minds about them because you have something concrete to talk about. The problem is every version is going to be imperfect. Perfect, right? But I, 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 if anyone is interested, please start thinking about how you might measure these things now. So let's start to think about how we can go a little bit further with the data that we already have. First, let's start with answer. Or, sorry, let's start with questions rather than answers. So we often think the data is an answer, and it kind of is, and it's a very quick answer for a lot of us for questions of what. Like, what's happening? How much emissions, how many, much, I don't speak English, right? How many, are there a lot of emissions? There we go, right? Uh, in countries, we might say, what proportion of Fortune 500 CEOs are women or people of color? The answer is statistically zero, right? How many uh, people of color are there in technology? How many women are in technology? We can look up those numbers. We can also appreciate that they're imperfect because only some, uh, some companies release that data, and those are probably the ones that are already uh, you know, doing better than others. So assume the numbers are worse than they actually are, but we can count stuff, okay. Okay, fine. But we don't know anything about the why still. But people, that doesn't stop people from having ideas and enacting pop, uh, policies that really affect people's lives. And so we might think that it has something to do with recruitment, okay? We might think it has something to do with turnover. We're recruiting, let's say, women, but they're all leaving the company, right? Or we might think there's something like bias afoot. Oh gosh, how would we even begin to understand or measure or evaluate the level of bias? And how would we know if it's going down or up or, or what's happening with it, right? So there's a lot of work to do. This is, you can tell I'm an academic because this is my idea of a good slide. It's just tons of words. And I was like, oh, I got to dress this up. So I turned some into colors, which made them even harder to read. So uh, this will be on the midterm. You are welcome. But my point here is that data only plays a role. So how many people did the scientific method like growing up in school or whatever? Yeah? So most of us, eh, not an, okay, we'll work on this. I was like, everyone's going to be bored to death. I had to do it for the first time when I was in third grade, and I thought it was the most tedious thing I'd ever heard. I was like, what do you mean we have to do, like, observe and then have a question and then, and then, I was like, I just want to look at the thing and, like, dig around and see what's there. It was owl pellets. It was disgusting, right? But I was like, let's get into it. I learned in graduate school, and it took me eight years to get here, that starting with a question about what you're observing is super helpful when it comes to deciding what further data you should look for. So normally when we work with data, we're like, oh, my God. Uh, 
women are leaving the company, quick, let's start uh, a women's resource group and start uh, more maternity policy and start this and start that. And maybe those are great things, but no one pauses to ask why that might be the case. And data really only plays a role in this process. Uh, at the very beginning, get a sense that people, you know, there aren't women in leadership. And at the end, after we've collected our data because we've known what to look for. To just give you an example is suppose we're curious why women are leaving a company. We, these slides are unreadable. These, we might say, okay, we've looked and we see that among middle management uh, employees at this company, women are more likely to leave. We've observed that. That's something of an answer from data. Okay. But then we can think of, and let's think broadly, of all the possible reasons. Maybe they're going to start um, to have families, which is one CE what one CEO's hypothesis was and why I was hired to investigate that. It turns out that was not the answer, not to give that away. Uh, another is they're looking up and looking at the people who are senior leaders in this company and not seeing any women, so assuming that it's not worth staying and investing time in that company. A third possibility, maybe there's some other dissatisfaction with that company, and so therefore you want to leave. Okay. Already those ideas tell us what data to look for to help to then understand what might be going on. And the question I encourage you to ask yourselves when you're approaching problems like this is if one of these things are true, what else should be true? So if women are leaving to start families, it should be the case that they're not getting other jobs elsewhere. And so then you could quickly do you know, a partnership with LinkedIn and stalk people. That probably violates a lot of policy, but you, know, you get the idea. You could find out. Right? Or if they are getting new jobs and you still think it might be a family thing, have a look at what all their maternity policies or paternity policies or childcare policies, if you think that's related and that starts to tell you a, a whole research agenda that you could follow. If you think it's the possibility of promotion, you might look at where in the pipeline people are leaving and think more about it. It wouldn't just stick with the middle management. You'd look at data at higher levels, maybe even ask people directly what would that be like, uh, or dissatisfaction, et cetera. So you would look for patterns. Have they stopped working altogether? Have they taken a job elsewhere? Or if it's dissatisfaction with the company, maybe men and women should be leaving at the same rate because if it's a horrible company, then why are the women who are leaving, right? It turned out in this particular case, the result was men and, and, and so, by the way, I did a project where I surveyed and interviewed all these men and women who had left the company. And it turned out men and women were both left because primarily they were dissatisfied with the company. A few things were going on that they objected to. And that was pretty common across all genders. The difference was there still were more women than men because given these dissatisfactions and the clear message that was being sent from leadership that you couldn't make it to the top, it wasn't worth putting up with it. Whereas more went, men were willing to put up with this dissatisfaction because you could potentially make it higher and make a difference. So that's what I saw uh, happening in this thing. But it wasn't until we asked a question, why is this happening, that we knew to look for job data, promotion data, or other data. Otherwise, we were just casting about, and they had already implemented a whole bunch of policies that weren't really necessary, right? Cool. The other thing is we tend to jump from a piece of data to an interpretation, and deciding how to measure something itself is a useful exercise, and it sounds like it was for Oatly, which was very exciting. So we think about the world out there as filled with facts, and then we think some of those facts are represented in data, and we analyze that data. But measurement is the beautiful act, and you can tell I think it's beautiful because I made that arrow dissolve in, right? It's important. Is when humans get involved and turn facts into data. And we do that a number of ways. We do it by deciding what to measure in the first place, by deciding how we're going to measure it, by deciding how we're going to validate it, how do we know it's correct, how do we know what we're measuring, what we think we're measuring, then how to interpret the data, 
And then, hopefully, especially when we're working with humans who are weird, who, who respond to results from studies, you might think about what unintended consequences the mere act of measurement has done. So perhaps you're thinking about measuring how full the trucks are will drive trucks to actually fill up more. I don't know, I hope so, right? So to give you an example, a lot of companies like to measure leadership. Well, what does that mean? Well, no one bothers to define it, but they do something called 360 reviews, which is where I, as an employee, ask uh, my colleagues and manager and direct reports to assess whether or not I'm a leader. And I might break it down into like five subcategories or something like that. How, the, how these companies validate this? Um, they hope for the best. They have no idea, right? Come see me if you're a company who's validating your leadership measurements. As far as I can tell, the ones that I have seen from my uh, narrow, narrow perspective uh, are not bothering to validate it. Then they start to interpret it, and they treat it as though it's true. So one company that I'm working with is very excited about using more and more data to make promotion decisions, and their thinking is more data means more objective decisions about people. But they've immediately forgotten that this data, I mean, it's data, but this data, you get it, right? This data was just a bunch of people saying, you're a four as a leader, without ever bothering to check on what I think of as a leader and what I think of as a four is remotely the same as anyone else, right? And an unintended consequence as well is that now that they're building it into these predictive rating models for your promotions, you've erased all incentive to get genuine feedback about whether or not you are a leader, even in the confines of this narrow measure, right? Because you're only going to pick people, or you might have an agreement with someone that says, let's both give each other high ratings and then separately give each other feedback, maybe, because the ratings are what's fed in, and that's how I get promoted. So giving someone candid feedback could hurt them. And that is what is happening, even though we think we're being more objective with data. So, we have no idea, right? Another way you might think about it is like, okay, we could say something like, a leader is someone who their direct reports overperform. That's not perfect, but it's a little bit more specific, right? And that would immediately say, well, let's evaluate the annual like, target or whatever results uh, achievement of people on their team, okay? then we would have to go back and validate the measure and say, well, who does this rule in or rule out? If we just go around and measure all my direct reports and compare that to everyone else's, does the body of people who emerge from this assessment as leaders look like the people we think are leaders? And that's pretty much as sophisticated as we get. And that's how democracy measures work too. We're like, let's count, you know, you have to have three elections where with one change of power, what does that rule in? If those feel like democracies, we'll keep going, right? That's what uh, kind of work we need to do, but lots and lots and lots of people need to do these things. Then we say, given this narrow definition of leader, here's what we find, and now let's make sure that we're not overly or, or, or wrongly or, or un, uh, unfairly incentivizing, uh, uh, overstating the achievements of your team. So, Because humans are clever, right? The minute you know how you're being assessed, we game the system. Sorry, I'm a pessimist. The fancy word for these things are conceptualization, hey, and operationalization. They're my favorite words in the world. Come talk to me about that after that. Finally, there are three big ways that we get data from humans. All of them are imperfect, and I just want to flag that there's one version that we're all excited about where you can collect data automatically. That looks like you know, the number of steps I'm taking per day that's recorded in my phone, how many times I'm posting on Twitter, things like that. Another one is asking people things. Asking people things is a useful way to figure out what they think they do. It's a terrible way to figure out what they do. If you ask Americans how many of you vote, like 70% say yeah. And then if you look at how many people vote, it's less than 50%. So 21% of Americans are lying even on that, great. 
or there's randomized treatments and trials. But each one of these only offers a partial view. So I urge all of you that if you're thinking about doing a, a research or quantitative-based project, to try to do a mix of different types of methods. What, what things are being generated that I can study? You know, who's sending emails to whom? That violates privacy, but I think it's fascinating, right? Who can I ask? How do I know that they're not gaming their answers? And could I even set up an experiment? So I know you told me that the closer you get to me, the less time I have. So I'm uh, going to stand over here to acknowledge uh, Here's my final assertion, right? Uh, the scientific method, conceptualization and operationalization are not the first things we think of when we think of data, but they're super important and doing the work to clarify what you're trying to measure can save you a lot of grief down the line. You can ignore that, it's too long. So in summary, there's tons of data out there, but it's still gonna be on the midterm. There's tons of data out there about humans now pacing away. We have more and more tools to collect it, uh, I say read any social science methods book if you want to do more, but generally speaking, if we don't bother to do theory, operationalization, and conceptualization, and using multiple inputs, we're likely to leap to conclusions that are inaccurate and could really not only mess up our understanding of what's going on, but lead people to act on data-driven policies or decisions that could be totally flawed. That was pessimistic. I shouldn't have gone last. All right, thank you. I'm Andrea. Bye.